So welcome everybody to the program on the 6th of October 2018. We're going to start with a guided meditation. So we're sitting comfortably upright. Legs are uncrossed. Palms can be resting in the lap or on the knees or on the arms of your chair. Well, let's start by an invocation. This is to basically draw um, into, let's say, higher aspects of ourselves. So you start with the intention that um, we seek the room to be imbued with the spirit of openness, clarity, um, guidance where needed. teachers of the tradition, the yogis, the sages, acknowledge the, the lineage and the continuity, the unbroken, continuous lineage of students, teachers, all the way back to time immemorial, to, to the first great discoverers of the techniques and philosophies that we draw upon. So all of that we invite to be present. As we become aware of our breathing, without any effort to change the breath, we just observe the natural flow of the breath. The key is to allow the awareness to ride on the breath or to ride with the breath. So this is an exercise in just centering the attention on a single process. It's a way of becoming free of the disturbance of thoughts, though they may still be present. We just effortlessly return the awareness back to the breath. Each time we realize that we're distracted we use only as much effort as it takes to realize that we're not with the breath, to return to the breath. Let's visualize breath as light. It's a healing, replenishing light 
and as we bring it in from the outside of the body, we allow it to wash through the body, clearing all the stored emotional energies that may be blocking us, causing resistance, causing unwanted mental activity, dissolving past patterns of thought or emotion that we want to now release. So the cleansing breath of light will do that for us if we ask it. Allow it to sweep through the body. Imagine that the whole body is breathing. You may feel the breath as if it's moving up from the feet to the top of the head, down from the top of the head and out through the feet. In this cleansing, sweeping, moving field of energy that you may visualize as a golden white light or just as a sensation. concerning ourselves with the body, we just visualize the light itself filling us. And as we breathe, it expands outwards in all directions with each breath, moving further out. So that we imagine that we are this expanding light. Filling the room, the building, the entire area, the street, the region, the suburbs. No. coast, inland and around, out to sea, everywhere out, moving in all directions, expanding. Now, bigger than the planet, moving outwards, encompassing all the stars, all the celestial objects, as this massively expanding, pulsating field of golden white light. breath, the cycle of the breath is an echo of the throb of creation, filling the universe. We exist boundless within this pulsating field of light. For a minute or two, just rest within this field, 
past the breath. sensations that the body feels, become aware of the body, and the outside sounds, the room itself, though the eyes are still closed, and though you're reconnecting with the physical, you still feel a connection to the expanded awareness that we were in. Appreciate the possibility now of simultaneously being able to access a state of expanded awareness while being in body and while being with thought. We're actually experiencing ourself on, you could say, more than one dimension. There's the absolute, expanded, unconditioned, perfect self, infinite, joyful, incapable of being improved upon, existing without foundation or support all-knowing, present in all parts, encompassing all. So there's that aspect of ourselves. And then there's the aspect of ourselves which is a contraction of that state which we know as body-mind. You as this person, this embodiment a name, with a role or roles, the two states are not mutually exclusive, this is a key understanding, to the absolute nature, we could call it the inner self, although it's not confined to any place. It's in and out at the same time, but the absolute nature of self is what the yogis believe is our essential, essential true nature. And then we have the contracted form, the physical form, which, which we could call the relative self, which exists relative to things, other people, to the environment. <clears throat> and just to illustrate the point further, you can gradually begin to open your eyes. Maintain that sense of connection with the expanded state of the absolute. possible 
that you can be basically in and out at the same time, experiencing yourself as this very large, boundless awareness on the one hand, but simultaneously perceiving this relative reality through the senses, through the eyes, the ears, touch, taste and smell. What is it we could ask? Or who is it that observes? What is that intelligence that apprehends the world through our eyes? What is the source of that intelligence? Is it ultimately any different than our expanded awareness? Is there really any duality other than that that's created by mind? Is there any separation other than that which is created by ego? This is the question to contemplate. <clears throat> so, that's pretty much it. Really, you can all go home. <laughs> Once you've got that down, once you know that you can return to that state, to that experience at will, and that if you start to live from that reality, then there are no problems. There is just movement within a field. That's all thought is. Thought's just movement, moving energy. Thoughts may be weak or powerful, true or not true. It doesn't really matter, it's just, it's just movement. Okay, that's ephemeral, you know. It's everything that you can observe with the physical senses is by nature transient. This is the message of the Buddha and all the great teachers is that this phenomenal world, the world of things, is in constant change in constant flux. It's ever renewing itself in each moment. They say if you could have the apparatus to, to perceive it, it's almost like reality is flashing on and off 300 times a second. It's being born in each moment. It's just the mind, it's like watching a movie, you know when movies are made of individual frames. Each one is a separate snapshot of the scene, slightly different. It's capturing change, actually, is what's happening. Each snapshot is capturing an aspect, a progression of change, that when you thread them together at 24 frames a second, or whatever the standard is now for movies, the mind believes that it's watching a continuous process. But in fact, they're, they're, they're separate instances of reality. And the moment that one is captured, it no longer exists. 
other than the record that it leaves behind, it's like footprints in the sand, then they get washed away and it's not no longer doesn't exist anymore. Not in a form that we could apprehend it. It may be true that maybe it exists, you know, in some dimension. And maybe that's what memory is. It's the revisiting of other realities that we perceive as being previous to this point in time. But maybe these are all just layers of a constant... Uh, what about when you... Layers of reality that are all existing at once. So past, present and future are actually all... all can only ever be in the now. But mind creates the illusion of moving forward or back. You know, when you have that, I've been here before, I've experienced that before, what, what is that? Well, it could be just a recognition or a connection energetically with, your, with yourself on another dimension at that moment. It seems like it. I mean, I had a um, thought once that what if everything that you think is your past is really just a backstory that you're creating in the moment to create the illusion that there is a history. Do you follow what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that everything that you think, and then you might say, this is actually borne out, I think, by quantum theory now, at least at the quantum level, that unless there's an observer, there's nothing actually existing. That the, the, the reality only comes into existence the moment someone's looking at it. So could it be that the past only exists when you return the awareness to it and when uh, imagine that there's and, a and I think that awareness can return when you have something of a similar thing happen to you this yes. is a trauma and then you'll go back to that whatever previous dimension it was whatever part it was exactly and you're you're in it yes and you're you can stay there yeah and that's what anxiety is so you're attracting it energetically back yeah, to you. You it's an energy connection because that energy hasn't been dispersed in whatever way it needs to be dispersed that's it that's what cleared. I think. That's exactly what I think happens. Mm. So you revisit if you have a, if you have a, enough buttons pressed at the, uh, that are similar. That doesn't have to be exactly the same. You will revisit that moment. Yeah. Because that energy is because that energy is still within you and it's still attracting that same thing back. And that's it. And then you just pull that dimension into the now, and that becomes your experience. Exactly. Until you can break it. That's it. So I think if that's true, then it means that what, do, what flows from that, I mean, there's so many ways you can take that analysis then. But the idea is that, um, I mean, they say that only now is real. We can appreciate that intellectually. But what if that was, what if you could start to experience that experientially? Like what if that was your reality, that you're, you're living in the now, in the moment? What, what does that mean about all the worries about things that haven't yet happened? You don't have them. You can let them, they have no power over you anymore. And what does it mean for all the things that have happened in the past that you can't change? Yeah, same thing. You can let them go. But isn't that simply what we're aspiring to do? Mm. It is, yes, but... Meditation. It is, but the point is that um, rather than aspiring, believing that this is a linear progression that we're on and one day we will get to the point where we can do it yeah, why not just do it now mm. exactly why not why not just put yourself mm. let's try an experiment 
Imagine that you've just been beamed down from a spaceship from another dimension and imbued within your consciousness is a whole a bank of memories that have just been put there. They didn't actually happen, they've just been put there. And so you have a feeling of a history, of a past. You have a feeling that you're, all these relationships existed. And if you go and open the photo album, certainly the photos will be there. But they, mm. if the ones on the next page may not even manifest until you turn the page. Mm. Do you get the idea? What I'm mm. saying is mm. that there is a way of, if you could, um, if you could apprehend the moment as being the only true reality, and all these other things, what we call past and present, is just echoes. Then the, 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 the liberation comes from the freedom that that now affords you to, to live not, everything to, not be, to be, the fullest. Yeah, and not to be bound by the, by the backstory, by the history, mm. or by the future that hasn't yet occurred. And yes, meditation will mm. deliver you to that experience ultimately, because what happens is that the thought field starts to thin out. The mind becomes naturally just more quiet all the time. Thoughts may still be there in the background, but the awareness, you know when they say live in the moment? Mm. It's very hard to do that actually, yeah, just using willpower. People go, yeah, I, I, you've got to be mindful. And so everyone's walking around trying to be mindful. But the moment the phone rings, yeah, or something listen. happens, you back out of the moment. Yeah. Isn't that true? Yep. It's very hard to, be, to hold awareness in the now yeah. by willpower. And so your question will be, uh, well then how do we get to that experience where that becomes the state? And what I think happens, and this is to your point, Eve, about meditation, is I think the neurology changes. The actual nervous system under the influence of meditation starts to just experience the now as its continual reality without effort. You don't have to try. It's so that living in the now is a byproduct because of you, meditation. And that's because you're not reacting and responding as much to those triggers. Yeah, you don't. You let them go, and therefore, you're not getting drawn away from the moment. Mm. It's like those clocks. Have you seen that have now on every every number is the word now. <laughs> no, no, so you're looking at it, and in fact, I, I had a powerful experience in India a couple of years ago. I was at a set of traffic lights, and I don't know in other countries they might do it as well. But as well as having the traffic lights, they have a counter that shows how many seconds it's going to be before the lights change again. And I'm, I'm sitting there watching, I wasn't driving, I was a passenger, and I'm sitting there and I'm just watching the numbers. And I'm thinking, I have this flash that this is what people call time. But it's not time at all, it's just numbers moving, it's lights moving in the now. Mm. Now it says 42, and now it says 41, now it says 40. But it's still now. Or even looking at your watch. You're watching the hand go round. Nothing's changed. But if you had no idea what that meant, mm. it would just be a thing that's moving. Mm. Do you see what I'm trying attached. to... 
Yeah, we, we associate, yeah. we associate, we give meaning to that mm. and then we structure our lives around it, but it's mm. a fiction. Mm. I mean, it's a necessary fiction in the sense, you might say, well, uh, what are you saying that I just throw my watch away like Peter Hopper did in Easy Rider? Through the watch, do you remember that scene? He takes his watch off and throws it in the dirt and it roars off. And there was a symbol in that that he was trying to live in a timeless state, which actually didn't end went well for them, but then they were drug dealers, uh, dealing with criminals. But the point is that this idea of um, giving up the um, idea of being governed by time, that the constant experience of the now is independent. Time is irrelevant. I mean, you just said that you've been up in the Kimberley. I mean, the Aborigines mm-hmm. have lived for 40,000 years. Mm-hmm. Anyone in, in an indigenous state will live. They will be aware of seasons. Yeah, and the stars and the... And all the movement of the change that's occurring. But moment to moment, they're not uh, enslaved by this concept of time and stuff like that. Now, I have to put a caveat on that and say, that's all well and good. But, you know, I have a job and I have to be there at nine o'clock in the morning every day. And and I'm not going to roll up there and say time doesn't exist. I roll up at 10 o'clock and say, my meditation teacher said that this is all just a fiction. But they'll say, well, that may be true. And so your continuing employment is also now a fiction. But you see this idea. I'm trying to. What I'm trying to is break us out of this. This but idea. But it is an illusion, and the, the mm. reason we're only here is because of our ego and our fears. Because this is the illusion we've created. Yeah. So the ego holds us. So there's another dimension over there. Yeah. So the ego holds us in this condition of being bound. Mm. And so when we do that exercise, like we did, where we move outside of mind, outside of ego, outside of limitation, what do we experience? What was your experience? Well, I went farther. You went deep. You were you were off, gone. <laughs> and Eve, what? How was it? How did you feel when in that in that state? Um, I I felt drawn back to um, when I had my brain injury and I lost my memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as was we that talking, kind of peaceful yes, in a way? As we were talking about before, you know, when you have a, a trauma or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, uh, if you want to experience that feeling again or you have a need to um, deal with an experience like that, like you've had before, you go back to it. I went back to it then. Mm. Um, and I went back to it not for a negative reason, no. but because when I lost my memory, I didn't have a past. Mm-hmm. And I had what I was told, mostly by my husband, mm-hmm. that I had two sons, I had a dog, two dogs at the time. Um, and that I had achieved all sorts of things. I had no memory of it whatsoever. Mm. I also had no idea about how serious a brain injury was. And so I was in a very happy, calm state. I was living, uh, sitting in the hospital bed, yeah. um, with no past. And certainly not worrying about a future. Mm-hmm. And while, while we, I was in that state here, I was thinking how wonderful it was when I was in that state. Mm-hmm. So I've been there and done it, but uh, it was, um, I guess, forced upon me rather than something that I so the injury wanted basically. to go to. Mm-hmm. The, so that's, I think that's the proof, and I, I've had this idea that for the last two weeks it keeps coming back to me, 
is that the people with dementia yeah, that are exactly. sitting in those rooms exactly. and we feel so sorry for them because they do look in a pretty bad situation. But really what is there will be consciousness, mm. will be there. Mm. You can erase all thought, but you can't erase awareness itself. While there's still life, there's going to be some sense of awareness. Yeah. And they're just in a state of pure awareness. Mm-hmm. And so what I think, this is interesting because my uncle was a neurosurgeon, a, a, a neuroscientist, and he says that the way to understand the functioning of the brain is to look at the pathology of the brain. Because he says, only when you see when, what happens when things break, do you start to understand what their function is when they're working. Mm. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If a wheel falls off your car, you realise the function of the wheel is to, so that you can continue to move. Mm. Or if the brakes fail, you can no longer stop. Ah, so therefore brakes must be for stopping. I mean, it's a trite example, but the point is that if you remove thought, the capacity for thought, what are you left with? And your experience is basically all the proof that we need that even without a mind, a functioning mind, there can still be a state of peace, joy. It was a wonderful state. Yeah. People even commented to my husband when they came to visit me. How happy you look. She's so calm. She's <laughs> so well. And I know I received people uh, in the same way as I thought I would have done before mm-hmm. um, and they were just amazed that just so soon after everything so what did going, you say, hello, who are you? Um, usually, you usually my husband was there and so he did the introduction so I, I can't really recall the minutiae of it all but I was just a very happy person, I was mm. sitting in my hospital bed mm. delighted to see these visitors mm. and enjoying the moment. And I bet your time had no relevance to you either. None whatsoever. Yeah. And so that's really my point, what I'm trying to say with all this, Mm. is that um, if we can move outside of mind, which puts limitation on things and sees Mm. everything as linear cause-effect and everything else, and just eradicate that that mode, uh, you know, the enlightened state, I think, is one of that absolute freedom where Mm. You're just in the moment spontaneously, as a child would be. Yes, that was it was very childlike. childlike like my state that. was very childlike. Yeah. I think dementia's like that. Yeah. It's a very childlike state. I isn't think it? so. So it's not really I mean, it's just as well because there's gonna be a lot more dementia patients mm. because of the stress, depression, anxiety dynamic that lead you know, they think may be causative now. But I mean I I just been, I've been pondering that and thinking it's not all bad. No. That the the awareness will still be there, and the, and it basically it's a meditative state. Mm. The difference is that we we will be able to access the state without needing to pass through dementia, hopefully. But we can have that experience as we just did, and we return to that. Can I just ask that that experience must have been like having the slate wiped clean and just seeing everybody with just purity and. Was it like that? Like there was no. I didn't think about the slate. But I, I mean, didn't have I know one. you. No, not you um, thinking, but you didn't think of anyone in a negative way. Oh, not at all. No, no, no judgment. No, no, there was no experience you've had. Yeah. With, yeah. So you've yeah, actually had a glimpse. Incredible. You've actually had a glimpse of where you know everyone's trying to get to with yeah. this process, and it wasn't through um, design. No, it certainly wasn't okay. through design. But yeah, Pete. I, <laughs> 
as I said, people were amazed that I wasn't tearing my hair out and mm. just grieving at this huge loss. Mm. So is that what the you had become would have done had you had your awareness that that is what you've lost? Well, um, yeah, I think before my, before my injury and even subsequent, once I started to get better, I really, uh, my mind, I started to sort my own mind out. Mm. Um, and I did a lot of training to do that. Once I started to get better, I started to receive all the negative things that oh, I used yeah. to receive. Mm. You know, the, the negative thoughts that come, all of those things mm. uh, that now I'm dealing with through meditation. Mm. Um, and I, I need to deal with through meditation, mm. whereas I didn't while I was ill. Mm. But that's interesting. So you really have had a glimpse yes. of, yes. The, of, the, of the state of liberation. Yeah, it was it was a lovely state to be in. I was very very calm, very mm. happy. Mm. And you remember that though. I that's do interesting. Remember that. It's interesting that there is still some mind there. That so I was going to talk today about the four layers of mind, which maybe we should move to now quickly. So in the yogic literature, they talk about um, um, the mind is an instrument. Right, it's not all that we are. It's a tool that we are given, as, as we are given the body with capabilities. Now the mind <coughs> is not just a single functioning thing, object. It actually has different facets or aspects or functions. And so the four that the yogis identify are the... Um, which one will I start with first? Okay, let's start with the operational mind. So there's part of the mind called manas, um, which is operational mind. So it's the mind that you use when you're cooking dinner, making a cup of tea, driving a car. There's no intellectual thinking going on. It's just that you're focusing on a task and you're using volition, will, and you're performing according to the amount of attention that you give it, you're performing capably. That's operational mind. And that's useful, you can see why that's necessary. Um, but it's not the only aspect of mind. There's another aspect of mind, which is the um, intellect. It's the part of the mind that you're in now. So you're listening, you're comprehending, you're analyzing, you're um, absorbing. Uh, we're abstracting a lot of ideas. So we talk, we're thinking in the abstract. I might use metaphor analogies, but it's really to just illustrate, but it's very, we're in a very abstract uh, mind state. Uh, this state is called the buddhi, which is related to the Buddha, the enlightened one, but it's not enlightenment in the ultimate sense. It's more the intellect, the higher mind, but it's still rational mind. And we obviously we need that as well, right? Because we have jobs, if we're working in uh, you know, information-based jobs or anything that requires um, reasoning, problem-solving, that's all using the intellect, the buddhi. So um, now we've got the other, the third layer of mind. These are not in any order, but I'm saving the best one for last, and you can probably see <laughs> where this is heading. But the next layer is called the chitam or the chitta. Chitta, chittam, which is the subconscious mind. It's the memory, the storehouse of memories, which is what we draw upon 
to create um, uh, a story, a narrative of our own lives. It's also where a lot of the subconscious impressions or that they're stored, like the past traumas or the positive experiences. And when you were saying about the, when the energies correlate with the present situation, it pulls forth the memory because the memories are carrying the same energy as whatever you're experiencing now at the moment this is how I think we recall things that's energetic I, I've got no proof of this I'm just speculating a bit but I'd say that if a bad if a an association with something previous occurs it carries a similar energy brings forth the memory so that's the chitam and that's a very powerful driver of, of our behavior it's where our beliefs are held as well. It's not really at a cognitive conscious level, it's more at a very deeply ingrained level. So it's driving a lot of our behaviors. It's where I think a lot of the behavioral tendencies are stored as well. Habits are formed and held in that layer as well. So when we do yoga nidra, we're actually working in that realm at that level. And, and the beauty is that you can actually um, and there are different ways of doing it. Hypnosis works within that realm as well. But yoga nidra and some of the other practices, lucid dreaming perhaps as well, is actually reorganized because the, the dreams are coming out of imp stored impressions. They're resonances of things that we've already encountered in the day and they manifest in all different weird ways. But the idea is within lucid dreaming that you can actually consciously start to reshape the way that those impressions are playing out through the through the dreaming mind and you can start to develop insight into the deep underlying drivers of your behavior and your tendencies and your fears and all sorts of things are stored. So in Yoga Nidra we go in there and we can consciously start to rearrange the deck chairs and we can see the, um, not on the Titanic hopefully, but we can see rearrange the furniture, we can see with more clarity the things that are holding us back, where we've got um, beliefs that are not helpful to us, phobias would be an example, or past traumas, all of that is stored in the chitam. So as we meditate, we can get access into that state as well, but yoga nidra in particular is very powerful and is designed to actually give us the ability to move into that state. So basically you put the body to sleep, but the mind is there's still awareness. So it's a very, it's a yogic deep sleep. And, um, and, uh, and a lot of people can use it. It's a, it's a method for, for breaking through limitation. You know, so that's that state. And then finally, last but not least, is the egoic mind, right? Which is in Sanskrit, it's called the ahamkara. Aham is I am ahamkara, but it's not the big I, absolute I, it's the limited I. And so what the ego is there for, and each of these functions of mind have survival value, they're necessary, um, but they're not all that we are. So the egoic mind is what we call in yoga the self-appropriating nature of mind. It's the I, me, mine aspect of mind. So it's the thing that gives rise to body identification, uh, you know, feelings of uh, a worthiness or unworthiness, adequacy, inadequacy, identification with race, caste, creed, gender, 
all those things that we define ourselves by. That's what I didn't have when I had my brain injury. No, no, no. That, <laughs> that's why you felt. That's why you were blissful. Dark. That's why you were blissful. Yeah. So this is where we're getting to with the yeah. meditation. Yeah, yeah. Is that eventually we break free, and I'm sort of getting cutting to the chase mm. a bit quick here, but um, I'll backtrack a little bit and let's talk about ego, and then we'll go back to where I'm about to go. So the egoic mind is necessary for the survival of the organism that you have a boundary that you consider to be self for the purpose of keeping this thing functioning and not in danger. But um, so it's okay at that level, but where it gets problematic is when we start to define ourselves solely as the egoic mind. And this is where most people in the world are most of the time is that I am you know, let's take a religious identification, Muslim versus Christian, or you know, any of that tribal stuff is all egoic, um, or nationalism is egoic, or, or uh, belonging to a football team, in a sense. Anything that gives rise to separation, me versus other, us versus them, is egoic. But they say, I am, don't they? I am. I am. When they do that. Yeah, yeah I am. Yes. They believe that's who they are. They believe that, yeah, go ahead. They believe that's who they are, is just that limited definition of self. Now, how did that idea of self get in there to begin with, do you think? Ego. How did the ego form? Keep you safe. No, but how did it form? That's why it formed. But how did it form? Yeah. Did it form from your uh, relationship with the people who brought you up and what they told you about yourself? Yeah, so we say conditioning mm. creates ego. Mm. It's the conditioned mind. Because yeah, when you had that experience of the freedom, mm. that was in an unconditioned state. Correct. So the conditioned mind is ego. And conditioning, another way of saying conditioning is it's a contraction. Mm. So in the absolute state that we had just when we were doing the guided meditation, it's unconditioned. There's no limit. Mm. There's no time. There's nothing. It's just this sense of freedom. But the moment you remember, say, then we say, come back to the body, mm. and you Slow. feel everything contract, <laughs> right? And we're back now, and you're listening to me, and you're in a body, and you may have some faint semblance of the prior experience, but pretty much now you're back in into the limited form, in the realm of form. Mm. Now. Um, and like I say, that can be good from a survival point of view, but when it begin, when you start to believe the mythology that you are only that, and therefore I now have to defend this, mm. that I've defined myself as, or that others have defined me as, mm. and I've bought that, bought into that idea, that's when the trouble, that's when suffering begins. That's the cause of suffering. It's just keeping you small. It's yeah. keeping you small-minded, small-hearted, yeah. everything. Yeah. It's small. It's limited and it's also separate. Mm. But is it also not a controlling mechanism? It, it yeah. can be. That's what conditioning's for in a, in, a, in a control sense, is that I, if I can make you believe that you are less than infinite, mm. then I can control you. And that's what I have to say some of the traditional religions haven't got right, mm. is the idea of keeping the person... Mm. 
small. I mean, they promise liberation, but they're actually controlling the keys to heaven. Yeah, because they're not you, allowing you to have free thought. Exactly. Mm. Now, I mean, I'm not down on religion per yeah. se, but I'm just saying that, that that's the difference, let's mm. say, between religion and spirituality. Mm. In spirituality, we're working directly with spirit, which is already infinite. You don't have to become anything. You don't have to put money in the tray every Sunday to get the ticket to heaven. You're in heaven. Heaven's here right now if you had the eyes to see it. And so that means being out, moving outside of the egoic mind. Now this brings me to the where I was hoping to land this uh, story. That the process of yoga and meditation is that every time that we immerse ourselves, hopefully daily, back into the state of the infinite, every time we touch that state, even if it's just momentary, some days you might only get a little taste of it, other days you'll be in there the whole time. But each time you touch that, the face of God, you could call it, whatever language you want to use, every time that you, you reacquaint yourself with that experience, something moves, something shifts in you, and eventually, over time, gradually, or maybe even not so gradually, the breakthrough will come, where you'll stop identifying with ego, with your egoic self, and then you will begin to identify, re-identify with that absolute nature of self. And that's what we call the enlightened state, is where you still carry it. My teacher, you know, was an enlightened master. He's still walking around in a body, was, and um, giving orders and, you know, yelling at people or, you know, giving people <laughs> spiritual awakening and whatever needed to be done. They're still capable of doing that. But they're not. They're watching it. They're not. Yeah, they're not, they're not in believing it. that that's all that they are. Mm -hmm. They're actually. Their real. Their in abiding experience is in is this infinite expanded state, and that's mm -hmm. where they are all the time. Mm -hmm. And they're just when mind needs to come into being, when a thought needs to come, it comes. It's it's still available. But um, so it would be like your state that you're in, in that brain damage state, but with the capacity to draw upon things at will, but when you weren't using them, they all disappear back into the void. Mm. So you didn't have that, you didn't have that capability for that time, you were just basically in the, in the open state. Yeah, I, I wasn't able to draw in any of the... Yeah, no. so the enlightened state would be similar to what you were in, yeah. except that they still have access as required to thought, you know, volition, will. I'd love to be, to be able to live in that state. Well, we all, that's wonderful. why we're here. Wonderful. <laughs> wow. But, you know, the, other, the good news is, if you've been listening to our radio program, where Gents and I talk about this, do you know about the radio program? Mm. The Natural State? So my friend Jensen comes over every Sunday and we record a podcast, which we call the radio program called The Natural State, which is up on YouTube now and SoundCloud as well. And we just shoot the breeze on enlightenment. We're just talking about this guy, what, what it's like to live in that state where you're not bound by um, limiting thoughts, by egoic thoughts. There may still be egoic thoughts there. Maybe it's necessary at a certain point. I assume a role of a teacher. Mm -hmm. But am I identified with this? 
not really, because if I knew that tomorrow I couldn't do this anymore, I would still be me. I would still, the state doesn't change. Mm. So and it's the same with you guys. I mean, we do this great exercise here. We haven't done it for a while, but we should try it again. <clears throat> I might just give the game away briefly, but it's still fun to try. You get a blank sheet of paper, A4 piece of paper. You put a vertical line down the middle of it, so you divide it into two equal columns. And on the top of one column, you write the word roles, R-O-L-E-S. And on the top of the other column, you write the word attributes. And then you have to list all the roles that you've played in your life currently, current roles. You could put former roles if you want, but let's start with current roles. Mother, wife, partner, you know, or if it's a male, you know, father, son. Um, what other, give me some examples of roles that you play. Teacher, like I say teacher. Teacher, board member, or formally, mm. board director. Yeah. Uh, business proprietor. Dunny cleaner. Student. Dunny cleaner. Student. Student. So these are all roles. Mm. And there's many. We all carry a lot of roles, usually. Mm. We're doing a lot of roles. And then we go over the attributes column. And you write down all the things, the qualities about you that you, that you have or that other people say that you have. No. This is probably a hard one, but you could put your gender, female, male. But attributes like... Um, Kindness. Kind. Uh, a good cook. Capabilities, actually, could go in there as well. Attributes and capabilities. Um, yeah, kind, general, impatient, you know. Good at playing the piano. All that stuff you can think of it's pretty you know it's this is varied as each individual okay so that's the first part of the exercise is you've now listed down as many roles and attributes as you think that would but people would recognize as you and then I say to people now take a pen and put a line through any of those ones that is capable of changing. Or be specifically about the roles. Any of the roles that could, mm. could change. All of them. And in the end you get to all. You do. And then you go over to the attributes column. Mm. Same deal. This is a shortcut to the answer is that they can all change as well. Any attribute that you have, like for instance, um, I gave a talk at a bank a couple of years ago and I gave them this exercise to do and um, <clears throat> one woman said, person, she was a woman, not that that was relevant, to the, not, <laughs> we're not, not worried, don't not to the question, no, you've got to be careful these days. Um, I said, uh, what is it that, uh, she goes, well, look, I believe that I'm a strong-willed person and my willpower will get me through anything. Even if things are adverse to me, I can, my will will prevail. And I said, so you don't think that's capable of changing? She goes, no, that's part of who I am. 
I'm, I've got strong will. And then I said, well, could you hypothetically imagine a situation where, heaven forbid, you should be in a car accident and you should, that area of the brain that controls that will might be damaged and then you couldn't exercise that anymore. And she got really angry because she, I mean, everyone in the room... Because you already taken away that, that the controlling mechanism. Well, that was the thing that she thought that was her, her last resort if everything went bad, that she always had that. And I was trying to point out, you know, not in a mean way, but really just to show that everything that you think you are can change. Mm. And everything, every role that you think you play can change. Mm. And therefore, where this is leading to is that these are all egoic attributes in the sense that we use each of the roles and attributes to define who we are. Mm. The ego believes that it is the collective of every role and every attribute. If you think about it, male, um, now, you might say, well, that's not an egoic thing, that's a fact that you're a male. I'm not arguing with the fact that this body is male. I'm suggesting that if I identify with that and I carry myself around as, I mean, it's what machoism is, being like really into the fact that you're a male. Um, well, it's, it's attaching to that. It's atta- it is attachment. And, that, and this is really where we mm. wanted to get to, is that ego is not harmful and limiting and debilitating and uh, a bad thing if you are controlling it. Yeah. But for yeah, the, the moment that it takes over yeah. and kicks you out of the driving seat mm. and it's telling you where it wants to go, that's when the trouble starts because suddenly if you now are contracted and living within the frame mm. of purely the egoic mind, then your whole world life experience is now dictated by this limited thing. Mm. Restricted it. Yeah. And then suddenly, you know, I'll come along and say, you're not that. And you go, what do you mean? You know, people take offense. They feel threatened <laughs> by the fact that you could be infinite. The ego hates the idea that you could be infinite, that you could be the same as me at that level, that we are all the same. Ego hates that idea, that it it no longer has any relevance. I was listening to, um, what's that uh, Israeli intellectual called, Yuval? Oh, I know. You know who I meant. Um, Yuli. He's talking about uh, the big challenge for the 21st century. In the 20th century, the, the issue was um, exploitation of the disempowered classes through um, lack of organised labour and before there were unions and that, that was the issue, was people were being exploited and that was the biggest threat to them. He said in the 21st century, the biggest threat to them will be the loss of relevance particularly if machines take over jobs. He said there are going to be a lot of people wandering around wondering what they're here for. Mm. Now, that is absolutely going to the heart of the question of ego. For as long as you believe that you were that machinist mm. or secretary or you know doctor or whatever it is, the moment that's taken away, the more strongly you identify with that role, the more you will suffer when that role is taken from you. So the more you are attached Mm. to the role, the stronger the attachment, the greater the suffering. 
that lies as, as the basically the ticking time bomb that's associated with, embedded within the attachment is the seeds of suffering and so the key to liberation is the gradual de-identification with the egoic self bearing in mind that you can still do the roles and attributes no one's saying you have to stop but you have to stop believing the myth that that's all that you are mm. you get it and so that liberation starts to look like you're just going through the motions doing what needs to be done realizing that at any moment any all of this could just change and at the same time holding the awareness of you in your expanded state in the absolute state as being the, the true as it were the enduring reality because if you think about it if we're cutting it down to the absolute raw basics this sense that you have that you exist you as not as um, Liz Eve, Narelle, Peter Kamo just as existence without name, without label, just existence. You get that? The sense of you as existence? Your pure existence? That feeling that you have has never changed. Even when you were a child, if someone had said, do you exist? You would think, not even have to think, but you would, you would recognize your existence straight away. What about when you're tiny, like before you're three? And you're I think it's there, I think it's there even, and the proof of that is Eve's experience. I'm proving everything now. Well, <laughs> you're actually a great guinea pig in this experiment of mind because you've shown us what it's like to be in a state of no mind. And That's very true. And awareness is all that remains. Your existence is the one thing you can be sure of. I think, you know, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Mm. He actually got it a little bit wrong. Even when you don't think, you are. are. Mm. Or you could just say, I am. And that is the only thing you can really say with 100% certainty, you know, when when you think about it. Mm. It's the only thing that's never going to change. Possibly, you know, the yogis say even after you die, there will still be a sense. If the consciousness continues, then the I am is still present. Then that may not no longer be a body associated with it. But if thought is energy, the karmas and all those things, the impressions get carried with the 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 soul, as it were, mm-hmm. into the next embodiment. Mm-hmm. And that explains a lot of the things that we can't explain using mm-hmm. rational mind. Why? people have certain tendencies. A child will be a prodigy on a piano at the age of three or five years old. And there is no rational, or a better example, of the children that have the um, past life experiences, the recall, at an early age. And they'll go and check with the family of the people that they claim to be with, and they'll corroborate the 100% of the story. There's no rational way of showing, and that's been documented over and over again now. So, I mean, that's really, but I mean, we don't need to necessarily need that hook to hang our argument on, but it just goes to the point that the enduring sense of I am is all that we 
can be sure of and, and it is our true, the truest expression of, of self. Nothing more to be done, just return. Return to the state of the I am and then um, we can talk about it later and I'll stop this tape right now. <laughs>